Welcome to episode 17 of the KIPPS Personal Trainer Application Podcast. My name is Tyler Valencia. I'm the president of KIPPS and Kettlebell Concepts. In this episode, we have the owner and developer of Bodyblade, Bruce Hymanson. By trade, Bruce is a physical therapist and educator, but through his innovative approach to movement, he developed the Bodyblade roughly 30 years ago. Throughout this episode, Bruce shares his approach to patient rehab and his journey to developing the Bodyblade. Let's get to the episode. Prior to recording, you and I had discussions about the body blade and kind of why you wanted to develop the body blade. Were your first intentions to develop a product that you could sell on a global level? <laughs> no, actually, uh, um, body blade actually was was a uh, an opportunity. It was a way for me to try to improve the way I could provide treatment. Uh, training consistency uh, for my patients. Um, in in my early days, I I was at Northridge Rehab um, in the San Fernando Valley in California, and uh, I was a member of uh, the trauma team. We we would treat uh, spinal cord injury, head injury, uh, stroke. Primarily, we had a heliport. Uh, um, it was it was the regional spinal center at the time, so um, you know we had some serious uh, emergency trauma that came to us, mm-hmm. and then um, after surgery they would would stay and we would provide rehabilitation for them. And so, um, you know, neuro in particular was um, uh, whether you would call it my specialty or uh, an area in treatment that I loved, um, because it was, there was so much depth to it and, uh, it applied to all patients really from that uh, approach, which, uh, um, was established early on in my training as a physical therapist. Um, but uh, body blade was really something that was created out of what I would consider a need um, for my patients and, and a way for me to, to try to codify or, um, reproduce, um, the ability to treat, uh, across the board for any patient. And it could even be used with other physical therapists at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to consistently treat our patients. And that, that goes back to, um, as I say, to the beginning for me, I was very fortunate uh, in my physical therapy education to have one of my my teachers, mentors, um, who had just come back from spending two years in uh, Germany at the University of Heidelberg. Mm. And she worked with um, Klein Vogelbach, who... Uh, many people would say is the mother of the Swiss ball. Oh, wow. Um, And um, we treated our patients. We learned in our therapeutic exercise not to have our patients lying prone or supine on a plinth, Mm. but rather to be on an unstable surface on a ball. So she learned they would take stroke patients, head injuries, spinal cord injuries, just ironically, what, what I had the privilege to, to work and treat um, when I graduated from school. Um, but 
in our therapeutic exercise courses, that's exactly what we learned. We learned to put our patients, regardless of the etiology, the diagnosis, um, could have been a shoulder patient, could have been a hip, knee, ankle, could have been a sprained ankle. We'd put them on a ball mm. and learned very early on about providing instability to bring about stability in the body to challenge the the brain and the neuromuscular system to work together. So um, that was the evolution of, of what we called, you know, I graduated from physical therapy school in 1977. So we're going back to 1975, 1976, 1977 of my therapeutic training. And in those days, we, we learned to treat the body train the body from the center out. So core stability, that's, uh, I hate to use the word a garbage term today because so many people use the words um, inappropriately or what does that really mean? It, doing sit-ups and training the rectus, oh, I'm doing core training. <laughs> uh, what we learned about core training uh, was to build the body from the center out. And what I always like to say is that everything from the neck to the pelvic floor is the core. Mm -hmm. And uh, that includes a, a lot of muscularity, a lot of joints, mm -hmm. uh, the entire spine, the, the shoulder, uh, the pelvis. Uh, there's so much that's truly connected to the core. And that's what we learned. That's how we established our treatment, our protocols for our patients. And that's how we we used it to evaluate the needs of our patients at the same time uh, through assessment of trunk control, trunk stabilization, core stabilization. And so, um, so when I graduated, interestingly enough, um, when I had graduated from physical therapy school and came back to the West Coast, um, people would see me in the clinic putting critical uh, very challenged patients that sometimes needed two or three people to help them sit on a ball, um, using a ball. And they said, what, what are you doing? You know, uh, you're using a ball and yeah. And so it was, um, a very unique and foreign, uh, application to training when I came back to the West coast here in 1977, I actually started, uh, teaching classes on using the ball, um, for, uh, UCLA and USC and California State University of Northridge uh, physical therapy students. It, um, it, it was a wonderful opportunity um, to share what I had learned. Um, it, I, it was just uh, an opportunity for me to be in the right place at the right time and to have the incredible teachers that I had uh, to take us away from what you might consider tradition or recipe types of approach to, uh, to treatment or training. So um, basically the body blade was an extension of that environment mm -hmm. of, of being able to provide instability um, on the most stable surface that we know, which is the planet. And to be able to do that using three planes of motion, um, to be able to engage um, um, uh, an individual who has no mobility, mm -hmm. has no motors to move to a certain degree, 
it, it, was a, it was an opportunity to try to duplicate the environment of being on a ball. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started for me. That's how, you know, I, I had my criteria, I had my wish list of how can I help this individual? How can I create instability? Um, even when they were lying supine in a hospital bed, how could I activate mm-hmm. the neuromuscular system? And how could I activate those deep, deep stabilizing muscles before we move the dynamic muscles? Mm-hmm. How could we provide stability before mobility? How could we have that at the spinal cord level before we start training in a quote traditional sense. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I want you to know also, um, if you think of all of us, we are all the same, we have the same nervous system and we we all fall along this spectrum of, of training or, or ability from th- those who need the most help, um, to on the other end of that spectrum, the, the world's best athletes in Olympic athletes, uh, the elite who have dedicated their lives to professional sports, whatever it might be, makes no difference. My approach to, to that individual, that world-class athlete, um, is exactly the same as it would be for, uh, an acute trauma patient that I would, would see because all of the principles apply. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, then it was just a matter of, uh, um, almost a year of testing and uh, of fine tuning to to get the body blade um, to do what it needed to do for me and how it um, uh, became what it is today. So, yeah, and that's thirty years ago. Wow, wow. 30, uh, 30 years ago, nineteen ninety one is when I first introduced uh, the the body blade um, for my peers. Um, you know, at a national convention for the American Physical Therapy Association. And that was, that was quite an experience, I'll tell you. But, uh, you know, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the term uh, paradigm shift. Um, uh, a, paradigm, a paradigm is a change from what is a well-established norm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whoever is that individual or whoever is that entity that is the paradigm shifter, They've got to overcome a lot of uh, resistance to change. Yeah. Uh, you've got people saying, well, we've been doing it this way for a long time, and why should I even bother considering what you're presenting? Because we don't do that. Um, and that you have to overcome that. So it, it was a, a challenge uh, to, um, to help. Really, it was an opportunity to educate yeah. people understand what I was presenting um, and, you know, how this could be an alternative. You know, it's not, it's not to say, stop what you're doing now do this, but rather be open to something adjunctive that you could introduce in your own treatment, your own training um, uh, for, for all of your patients or clients, uh, you know, and then from there, if we expanded into the athletic trainers and uh, strength coaches and a lot of professional organizations, and then um, also through my teaching and my my training and um, 
um, it, really a wonderful period of time in the in the 90s um, when there was a, a transformation, if you will, in the way we approached uh, treatment and training. Um, nothing wrong with tradition at all, but you know, let's talk function. Yeah, you know, let's let let's not isolate uh, body parts or look at the human body in, in isolation um, with tunnel vision. Let's, let's look at this beautiful temple of ours from a functional perspective. I would how say do we move? How yeah. do the three planes of motion uh, come into play? How do we build the body to be stable before we're mobile? Start answering all of these key questions that are critical, uh, not only for, for treatment, but for, for, protecting the joints and activating the, the, the neuromuscular system the way it wants to be activated to be successful. Oh, yeah. You know, we have 610 functional muscles in the body. So think about for a moment, each one of these muscles is talking to the rest of them. Imagine putting 610 people in a room mm -hmm. and saying, okay, guys, let's talk. And now everybody's chattering and talking to their neighbors and, figuring out what, uh, what I'm doing, what you're doing, let's catch up. And that's basically what your nervous system is doing all day long in milliseconds. Um, having this exquisite conversation with your muscular system, which is very simply the motors. Mm -hmm. They're the motors that move you. You know, if you could, I always say if you could unzip your muscles um, and hang them in the closet, you, just, you would just be a bag of bones. Mm -hmm. um, without the ability to move. There you are, there you sit. Uh, bones hung in the closet and, uh, and, and your motor is sitting right next to it. They've <laughs> got to work together. Mm -hmm. but anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent, but. Uh, it's a good tangent though. It's a very yeah. good tangent. And we'll, we'll come back to actually what you mentioned about core training and core stability. Um, that is a very interesting topic that you and I share similar views on. So we'll mm -hmm. definitely be coming back to that. And I thought it was great that you talked about the state of physical therapy when you were introducing the body blade. And I would say even experiences that I've had within physical therapy, there's always, I even worked one of my first jobs actually was being a physical therapy aide. And from my experiences of being an aide, but then also going to physical therapy for past injuries, I feel like the quality physical therapists that I've worked with, they always had some type of modality that they, uh, I'll say, made their own or they kind of just uh, altered it just a bit for what they wanted to utilize with it. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. I enjoy that. And with your product, was there a point when you were like, okay, this can be something that I can distribute globally? Did you have that moment? Well, not like that. Um, when I, you know, when I was first um, being being in the Los Angeles area, you can imagine all of the the rehab centers that are in this area, and uh, uh, you know, some really uh, well known physicians and rehab groups. Uh, um, you know, for example, Curlin and Joe was out here, and we had UCLA and USC, uh, and and. Um, my peers, my friends who are also physical therapists, when I initially started uh, and I was using it with my own patients and getting positive results um, mm -hmm. that I was excited about, I thought I, I have to 
give some body blades out to my friends. And I would just simply let them know that um, treat your spine patients, uh, your shoulder patients. Uh, here's some of the things that I do with my patients. And please um, test it. Uh, let me know your thoughts because these are the types of results that I've been able to achieve. And I would love your feedback. And so um, over the course of about three months, the, the feedback that I was getting from uh, pretty much everyone was that this thing works. Um, it does exactly what you say it does. And, uh, you know, the patients will tell you that they're, they're moving better, they're feeling better, they're performing better, they're... Um, their pain level has has dropped, or we were using it for the shoulder, but then their cervical spine improved, and they were they were uh, pleasantly surprised about the additional benefits that their patients were achieving, um, which just confirmed for me that it that it does take a global approach to the body, um, and you may focus on the shoulder but there's going to be an effect in the lumbar spine as well. Mm -hmm. Or you may be thinking about the knee, but why, why would the hip improve? Why would the ankle improve? What is going on here? And so that was the first time that I realized that, uh, okay, it's not just me. You know, it was my, it was my idea. Uh, it was my passion. You know, you fall in love with your, your, your product sometimes and your, and your goals. Uh, but then when you get that feedback from the, your peers, um, that validates what you're thinking. It was at that point that I thought, now it's time to introduce uh, this product to, to my peers and start thinking about manufacturing. Um, and that took on a whole new uh, challenge. <laughs> you know, as a, as, as a physical therapist, um, I was not at all familiar with what it took to manufacture something, mass produce something, um, and then market it, sell it. Um, you know, that's a whole different world. Oh, yeah. And uh, believe me, I made many, many mistakes along the way. And, um, you know, you, you, it's funny because I think ignorance is bliss sometimes because if I had known then what I know today, uh, I would have taken a completely different approach to how I would have um, entered into the entrepreneurial side of now manufacturing a piece of exercise equipment or a training tool mm -hmm. to share with, with uh, the world, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was an evolution that, um, you know, it's still evolving, but, but I would say over the over the course of uh, uh, four or five years, I realized um, that even though I wasn't necessarily marketing to strength coaches initially um, <clears throat> or the professional ranks in athletics, that those people involved with training athletes were learning about it. Mm -hmm. They were starting to use it and experiencing the benefits as well. So uh, it was almost as though I was pulled into it um, because of those people who were experiencing the product and wanted to know more about it. Mm -hmm.
Oh yeah. And I think uh, what's great to hear about that is your connection to the education with it. I think that was something that caught my ear when we had previously discussed Bodyblade, discussed this this podcast. It was that we both shared an affinity for education and how to get knowledge out to the masses. And mm-hmm. with the, the item that caught my eye the most was when we talked about multiplanar movements. Yes. Movement. And that is actually something that I would consider that is making a resurgence of lately within the industry. When we typical individual thinks of exercise, they think of isolated body, uh, bodybuilding, you know, their bicep curls, their, their bench press. But when we look at movement, we think about tools that can help them. And then we've discussed several of them. And the bodybuilding, in my opinion, fits right in there. And I've used it in that capacity as well, my own training. And so with your experience and also with how you developed it, was developing a multiplanar tool what you originally had in mind? Well, um, that's really a two-part question. Uh, you know, the multi-directional movement or what I would refer to as the three planes of motion. Mm-hmm. I was initially thinking um, as a physical therapist mm-hmm. that I, my approach was to speak to my peers initially. Um, and now, again, today, being smarter, I, I perhaps would have expanded my field of, of connection or education. But at the time, uh, as a physical therapist, I wanted to talk to my peers and say, hey, this is, this is what I'm doing with my patients. You know, maybe this is something you can do with your patients. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, as I said um, a little earlier, the, it was almost that the, the shared information uh, some of the seminars that I might be part of or speak with at the time <clears throat> or do a, a guest uh, uh, talk for an hour, hour and a half. There was a lot of people there. You would have athletic trainers certified. Mm-hmm. You would have strength coaches, um, conditioning specialists, uh, kinesiologists, um, exercise physiologists. There was a, a fairly large gamut of health professionals and wow that would attend and, you know, they take this information back to their, to their own groups. And, you know, before you know it, it's like, it's like throwing a, a little pebble in a, in a nice glassy pond. And then you see how the rings expand mm-hmm. and then imagine throwing two or three pebbles in the pond. And now you've got these, these two or three overlapping puddles interacting with each other. And, um, then it was a focus. You know, I would go to um, the uh, trainers' uh, conferences, and then I, I would start expanding uh, where I would go or accepting um, opportunities to to work with some other incredible people, like Gary Gray. Gary Gray has been a friend of mine f- for thirty years, and somebody that I have tremendous respect for as well. But you know, you you get to know some of the people who are having similar conversations. Um, And uh, so today I want to talk to everybody who will listen. And uh, I want, I mean, if, if you get, if you get back to the basics here, what are we doing here? What our goal as health practitioners, um, we're in a position to help people have a better life. 
we're in a position to help people enjoy life, um, to, to have better movement, to help decrease pain, to help improve function, to be able to celebrate their families um, and enjoy life. I mean, this is, this is the goal. This is, you know, this is what our training gives us. It gives us the opportunity to help those who um, may need to improve something in their life. And, you know, it's a very interesting crossover at the same time. And I was talking to, to my son about this the other day. Um, just because there's an area of conversation sometimes that is not necessarily what you would consider your area of expertise, mm -hmm. but you have knowledge about something else. You know, mm -hmm. so the, the longer you are a, a professional at what you do, you learn more, which uh, as long as you, in my opinion, you can stay within your own wheelhouse but if you have information to share with somebody that helps them to get to another place, then I feel it's almost our duty to share things along the way that you learn yourself, as long as you stay within your area of expertise and don't start trying to cross over. But if you learn something um, that pertains to nutrition or, um, you know, when someone has a misconception about something and you can direct them in the right place to learn more about what's really appropriate. Why not share that information? That's, you know, being a physical therapist for 40 years plus, you, you pick things up along the way. And, you know, I, I feel it's an opportunity. It's a gift. It's a gift to be able to share what you know, to help spark um, more questions or, the ability to learn something for someone that's going to ultimately say, I never even thought about that, but thank you for, for giving me that direction where I can learn more about it, make a difference in my life. But, but anyway, coming back to um, multi-directional or what I call the planes of motion. And um, again, that comes back to my, to my education in therapeutic exercise, everything, everything we do, we are in a triplane environment. Uh, we don't isolate and move in one plane. And, and I say this, you know, for example, you know, you were just talking about weight training and isolation and, um, you know, this, this is nothing against quote tradition. Um, you know, if that's what people love to do, well, fine. But for me, um, I am kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum. I'm, I'm about function and and movement as uh, you know putting all of that that together in all three planes of motion so if we want to focus on you know the the physical planes for example for those who are interested in in if i break this down the the physical planes of sagittal plane which divides the body into left and right halves if you will or that that sagittal that physical sagittal plane can move to the left or to the right, uh, could even be outside of the body, but still it's that sagittal plane. So if you were standing against the wall, for example, and your shoulder was on the wall, that's, that's the sagittal plane. Um, then the, um, the frontal plane, which would divide your body into front and rear portions. And uh, if you were with your back against the wall, that's the frontal plane. 
And then, of course, the transverse plane, which would um, divide the body into upper and lower parts. Uh, or anywhere along that spectrum, if you're standing on the floor, you're standing on the transverse plane. Mm -hmm. so, so then think about movement now. So that's the physical plane. But then the movement plane, um, if you're moving in a sagittal plane, you're moving in a forward to back um, motion. Mm -hmm. And if you're moving in the frontal plane, you're moving from a left to right uh, environment or in the transverse plane, you're, you're moving in rotation along the long axis of your body. Mm -hmm. um, now, the beautiful thing here is that um, when I look at this movement spectrum and, and bringing all three planes of motion together, you can do it with, with gravity, or you can tell gravity to take a hike. And you can, you can do this within the body itself and without any gravity. In fact, we train the astronauts um, in a zero-G environment uh, on how to train their body in space. Mm. Because when it comes to uh, using your body in a triplane environment, you, you don't need gravity to achieve that, that goal. But, but anyway, coming back to those those functional movements and functional planes, you, you never move in just the sagittal plane. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you are standing and step into a forward lunge and then back to your standing, let's say you have a wide base of support and then you step forward into a lunge and come back. Well, you're moving in the sagittal plane. No question about it. And let's, let's even say that that may be your predominant plane, but, but you're also using your frontal plane and transverse plane muscle as well to stabilize while you're moving through the sagittal plane. So you're never, you're never escaping or void of a triplane environment. Or if you do a lateral lunge and then back to the center, or, or you may step, take your, if you're standing with a, let's say a wide base of support and you take your right leg step forward across the left side of your body. Well, now you're introducing a transverse plane movement, but you still have to stabilize or co-stabilize if you will in, in that sagittal and frontal plane environment. So you're, you're constantly interacting in a triplane perspective. Oh, yeah. And then and then you know there when you think of when you think of what the muscles do for example um you know, you're adding are are you an agonist or an antagonist are you a fixator or or are you a co-contractor uh, and and how or you know how do they work in synergy what's going on you know the very simple movement that we're just talking about there's so much going on in the body that when when you have the proper education to think about and analyze how the body moves, or let's say you have an individual with a, a hip weakness, and how how are you going to train that hip? Well, you could think about it from a traditional sense of let's let's side lie and do abduction exercise. Let's you know do ten reps. Well, why not stand up? If, if they're capable of standing and, and start doing some rotational steps 
or even starting in a more simple, uh, just let's not do rotation straight away because I, I believe that tr- rotation is one of the more complex um, planes to train in. Uh, let's just do some simple step forward, step back, sagittal plane exercise, for example, and then move into the frontal plane. Um, you know, with, with body blade, we have rules of progression, but also those rules of progression, uh, I believe, apply in general. Um, I, I usually like to say sagittal plane before frontal, before transverse, because it requires, as you progress through the planes, it also requires more stability before you can be mobile. Mm-hmm. And so I like to take people through a sequence that way. But it's impossible from my perspective and from my approach to treatment and training, not to consider a triplane environment, a multi-directional plane as, you, as you've described. Mm-hmm. It's impossible not to include that. And so for, for a lot of people, uh, when I teach, initially that's a difficult concept to, you know, to understand, well, is this a sagittal plane movement? Is this a frontal plane movement? Or how can I activate the, the hip, the knee, the ankle, the shoulder in these particular planes of motion. So how does that relate? How, how do I incorporate a, a, a treatment or training regimen um, that needs to address these three planes of motion? And that's where your skills come in to evaluate what's in front of you. What, what does the, what does the patient or client present? Oh, yeah. I would say that that is part of the evolution of a fitness professional. And you could even look at the different entry levels. And I'll take the personal trainer perspective since that's where I come from. When a personal trainer first enters the industry, they preliminary think about just doing bicep curls, chest presses. Okay, what is that primary muscle that they're utilizing? But I believe it was Tom Purvis. Mm -hmm. He has a video on YouTube about isolated isolation and certain exercises and the the example that he used which i think is a good one he was using bicep curls but he's saying well what's happening with the core what's happening with your legs if you weren't using uh your legs if you weren't using your core to stabilize you would essentially just be mush on the ground and i think that those are not the exact words that he used but uh in terms of just thinking about if you there is no uh, i'll say true isolation was the point that he was getting at and that you have to engage other muscles that are in different planes in order to perform certain quote unquote isolated exercises. And I think that that goes along with the evolution of certain individuals because they learn, okay, when I'm going to set a client up or a patient up on an exercise, what are the other joints doing? How are they interacting with their environment? How, how are forces acting on their body? And so with going through the industry, I always think it's very interesting what different professionals from different spectrums, how they approach certain exercises or even their, the language that they speak, strength coaches, physical therapists, athletic trainers, personal trainers, they all have a different, I would say not a very big difference in terms of their approach. Mm-hmm. but the terminology sometimes varies. And I think uh, something interesting right now would be just based off our conversations and also um, so far what you've shared is your approach, I'll say, to something very common such as low back pain. That is something that every client, whether it's a personal trainer or even a physical therapist, that at some point they don't have to deal with a client or a patient that has some sort of low back pain. Can you share some of your 
or can you share your approach to low back pain and even um, what that client uh, might go through if they walk into your clinic? Well, low back pain, as you know, um, it's a very common complaint mm -hmm. from uh, people, from patients, uh, clients, uh, all of us. Um, at some point, I would, I would say uh, back pain is something that we are all familiar with or have experienced. Um, you know, for, for me as a physical therapist um, in working with so many different people, uh, there's so much to consider. Uh, and, and first, I think what's potentially most valuable is the proper assessment. Yeah. Um, you, you need to do a physical examination of the person. You need to uh, listen. You need to be a very good listener. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think um, the, the more we do, the more we learn, the more we know, we also may think we know the answer right away. Just by, just by watching somebody walk into the clinic sometimes, I, I know a lot about what the problem is without even saying hello. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that can be dangerous too. You need to be less uh, assuming and more of a great listener. And so that's part of the evaluation is to listen to what your client has to say about why are you here? What, why do you have back pain? What, tell, me, tell me about yourself. Tell me what are you doing? What have you been doing? What hurts? When does it hurt? Why does it hurt? Um, and, and you need to spend um, an hour with that individual obtaining as much information, medical history um, from them, and then incorporating that with your physical assessment of their body, their flexibility, um, you know, where are they limited? Do they, do they, are they limited in inflection, extension, lateral flexion, rotation? If, if they raise their arm over their head, does that activate and bother their low back? If, if they're standing on one leg, if you're testing single leg balance, does that aggravate the hip on the opposite side of where their pain is? So you need to assess, um, everything you can about that individual because let's face it you've got trauma potentially you've got arthritis congenital problems that people are born with and have been managing their whole life so imagine they could have a scoliosis in the spine they could have adaptive shortening on one side of the body which is now maybe 30 years into their life causing real problems you've got uh, social environment, uh, work environment, gravity, for goodness sakes, gravity, the enemy on this planet is gravity. Um, improper training, poor training, and uh, think about body awareness. I'm sure we could all, as professionals, agree that sometimes we see somebody standing in line with their knees locked out and they're just kind of hanging back on their hip and their ligaments. Um, with a rounded back and a rounded shoulder, you can almost predict that if this person doesn't have back pain, they will have back pain. So it's it, that poor body wearing. So all of this, in my opinion, um, is what is important to determine, assess, evaluate, and then, then we start to treat or train that client. Plus, we need to educate them as well 
on the things that they may be doing that needs to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, uh, we may hear from a surgeon who is constantly standing over their, their uh, patient doing surgery for six hours or sitting in a chair, um, like a dentist, for example, um, and they, they, they have mid-back pain, thoracic pain, low back pain. Um, well, why? Why? We, we, we determine that they're, they're slouching. They're, they're not using their erector spinae. They're not using their postural muscles correctly. They're not engaging those muscles. And they go just the opposite. They, they sometimes will share with me that they wear one of these figure eight braces to hold their, their posture. But in essence, what they're doing is they're completely turning off those muscles to do their job. And they're just asking you, please let me do my job in life. That's what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. So there's so much that goes into um, the evaluation and, and the proper treatment, the proper advice, the proper exercise regimen for that individual to help them with their low back problems. Even uh, imagine, you know, the socially what we as young teenagers go through. Um, we would we would see young young girls, young teenagers who are tall, taller than their their friends, and so what they want to fit in, so they slouch. So when sometimes when you see them, and now they're maybe late teens or early twenties, and they have uh, tightness in their forward chest muscles, they're rounded in their thoracic spine, they have low back pain. It's because of that social interaction, that, that environment that they have, because they're tall, they wanted to make themselves shorter. And the only way they could do that was to slouch forward. And then, of course, look at, look at technology today where, where we all sit at a computer. And um, this is where the enemy comes in with gravity. We round, our head weighs approximately 10 pounds. So you've, you've got this bowling ball sitting on the top of your shoulders and every degree that you move forward with the forward head posture, think about the, the amount of extra work that has to go on in your extensor, the muscles, your multifities, your, your rector spinae, the multiple layers that contribute to proper posture in your spine. Look at what that does with a rounded curve. Um, but by the end of the day, if you're just sitting at a computer at work all day and letting gravity take over, you have pain. You have adaptive shortening. You could even have nerve root pain um, because the vertebrae are sliding or collapsing or you have a disc problem. You have migration in the disc and then it touches the nerve root and then that sends out, um, you know, the human body wants to protect itself. So if you touch that nerve root, well, the muscles around the spine in that area are going to tighten up. They're going to co-contract. They're going to say, hey, I'm not going to let you move now um, because that hurts. And so now you, you have another problem that you need to deal with. So, and, and I, I hope I'm not just throwing out so much, but, mm-hmm. but it, I think it comes back to the proper assessment. Oh, yeah. Um, and then addressing the, the muscularity of the body. Um, posture, uh, posture is so important. Um, and, 
And, um, you know, my theory about posture is that it, if you're seated, for example, that it, it has to do, you know, some people might describe good posture as like having a string at the top of your head and you're pulling the string up. Um, and that's fine, but, but let's go more proximal. Let's go more to the center of the body. Good posture begins with the proper pelvic control. And if you have that slight anterior pelvic tilt, um, which puts you into the proper lumbar curve, uh, you'll notice that it's almost impossible for you to have a forward head posture. When you set the pelvis in the proper position and the cervical thoracic lumbar spine lines up correctly, it's almost impossible to throw your head forward out of alignment. Your shoulders will fall relaxed and down and your scapula will come together. And so when you, when you start to build that base from the pelvis, now the muscle starts to perform correctly. You realign the body. That 10-pound head, that 10-pound bowling ball um, comes back over the shoulder. So if you drop a plumb line from the ear, it should pass right through the shoulder joint, which should pass right through the hip joint when you have the proper alignment. Um, and these are the simple things to in addition to treatment and helping that patient perhaps achieve a balance of mobility and stability, lengthening muscles that are shortened, shortening muscles that are lengthened, um, to understand the mechanics of what they're doing at the same time. And then um, putting together uh, the planes of motion and, and the simple movements involved with uh, retraining the body and letting them do what they want to do. And so getting back to that conversation that all of the muscles have in the body when they're talking to each other, it's finally, finally the muscles are saying, ah, oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Now I can do my job. <laughs> I'm, now I can do what I need to do. I personally think posture is, uh, I'll say gateway, but also low hanging fruit for personal trainers in terms of being able to understand where their client is coming from and why they are having certain issues and what potentially what goals you can set with them. And that mm -hmm. ties right into the assessment, just how you're saying with physical therapists, with personal trainers, the same posture can lead into that conversation and open up doors for a fitness professional and where they could take their training. And so with assessments, I think we've even seen a resurgence of assessment certifications and the education being made available about assessments and where that can lead for the industry. It's amazing to see all those types of things come into play just because it opens up more opportunities for the clients or patients and potentially better programming for them. And so segueing into our podcast takeaway, because this, I think this is going to be the fun one for people listening in because we both have shared our perspectives and this is also tie in kind of everything we've discussed in this episode. And so we look at the education involved with core training, core stability, whatever listeners want to call it. It's one of my favorite parts about reading core research is that there's no, as of now, there's no correlation or that doesn't show athletic performance and core training helps. Nothing exists. There's nothing. But we're getting closer. Mm -hmm. I will say that that is something that's interesting. And if you look at 
research from 20 years ago, 25 years ago, even the way that they defined it, the assessments that where they were performing. And I think the issue that we're looking at with core research and athletic performance is that it's hard to replicate in a research setting athletic performance. It's often based off of a stimulus and therefore the athlete is using people and this also can potentially open up another can of worms here, <laughs> but will define agility uh, and they'll use and they'll confuse agility with change of direction. But with agility, we often see reaction time and we see that response to a stimulus. So how can you do that inside of a research setting? How can you quantify it or how can you replicate it? So those are the issues that core research, I'll say, faces. And so the question for you now is what is your perspective on core training? Well, I know that there are um, certainly two camps, um, you know, those who believe that you need to be rigidly strong and stable, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then there are those that would subscribe to more fluidity. Yep. Um, I guess, if anything, I would fall into the fluidity camp. Um, I believe that... Uh, to have true core stabilization or, or to be stable, period. Uh, how, can you, how can you be stable if you can't be stable when you're moving? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and, you know, and again, I, I think there is that there, and there's probably plenty of research to support both, but I'm of the camp of, of mobility, mm -hmm. stability and mobility, stability before mobility. Um, stability and mobility. Um, if you think about all of that, it has to relate to movement and function. But, you know, the other thing that I think we were just touching on also that I think is extremely critically important is power. Mm -hmm. I think power is uh, a misused word um, and perhaps even misunderstood. Um, I think for a lot of people, power in their mind equates to strength. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, where you hear, well, that, that person is really powerful, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what are we looking at? We're looking at a, uh, an individual who can lift a, a 400 pound uh, ball and lift it five feet. That's a, that guy is powerful, right? Mm -hmm. Well, strong, but not necessarily powerful. And power has to do, we're talking about force times mass times acceleration divided by time. Now we're talking power. How quickly can you move as a human being? And let's, let's take power down to the real basic here for a moment. Imagine that you're standing in front of a, a staircase and you wanna step up. You wanna take your right foot and lift it up to the first step that you're gonna take before you lift your body up onto that first step. What has to happen? There has to be the moment, the moment that foot comes off of the floor, there has to be an instant reaction in the deep core to stabilize this body before that right leg moves to the step. That's power. That's developing some form of activity quickly to stabilize the body before it moves to the next level. 
or let's look at this in in terms of athletics. Uh, imagine, uh, let's take the game. Uh, oof, we could take any sport. We could mm-hmm. take, uh, let's say, football for a moment. Um, you've got uh, two linemen squared off in front of each other. One weighs uh, 340 pounds and the other weighs uh, 220. And you think, well, the, the 220 pound lineman, he's got a problem coming his way. Well, but if that 220 pound lineman gets off the line of scrimmage and hits the over 300 pound lineman before he can get himself up, he wins every time. Mm-hmm. And that's because he's developing quickness, power, um, speed of movement, and the ability to develop that in conjunction with strength. That's the key. So when it comes to core stabilization and training the core, um, I believe in thinking in terms of power development and functional mobility together. That to me is, is the basis of proper core stabilization. Um, uh, let's take a look at somebody like, uh, uh, I, hope, I hope it's okay to drop a few names here, but let's take a look at somebody like LeBron James, for example. Mm-hmm. He is a, an incredible athlete. And I know what he, what he devotes his time to doing. Um, he, he spends a lot of time in power training. So he can uh, control his body quickly, accurately, stabilize before he executes. So uh, you, you think of plyometrics. But let, let's, let's just think about what we do. Again, we talk about gravity. If you are moving your body, you have to accelerate decelerate, stop, stabilize, and do something. So again, looking at basketball, for example, you're running down the court. You, you now are about to shoot. You have to stop. You have to decelerate that in, incredible mass of the body because it's not just about how much you weigh. It's about how much mass your body represents. So you accelerate that mass, you're providing force to accelerate. Then at some point you have to start to decelerate that force. You have to decelerate the mass of your body and now you have to stabilize it. At the moment you have that stability, which may appear to be instantaneous. There's a lot going on in the body to stabilize. Now you've got this stable mass of a human body and then you execute this exquisite shot that goes right through the net. So all of that is about being able to be powerful, quick, reactive, stabilize, control the mass of your body, accelerate, decelerate, all of that as quickly as possible. Now that is what core stabilization is. If you're not able to do all of that, if you're not able to bring your client to that level where they can control that, then they're sloppy. Mm -hmm. They will look sloppy. They will execute poorly. And that's when they walk into your office and say, I've got back pain or or I've got hip pain. Uh, Something's not right. And when you look at those factors, um, we have to examine, we have to examine power in the body and train for power. Yeah. That's critically important. And that's part of what was, was about was on my list with body blade too. It's all about power. It's all about 
Newton's laws of inertia. It's all about acceleration and deceleration of the mass in your body. Um, that's the key. And unless, you know, whether we escape gravity, if we're in space, or we, we train without gravity, the fact is, is we live in a gravity-rich environment. We have to control our body in that environment, and we have to be powerful and strong and stable in all three planes of motion mm-hmm. to be successful. I mean, even looking at, uh, let's take back the example you gave with alignment, and this was actually something that was recently on my mind with the NFL Combine and the analysis of a certain lineman. I think it was a lineman that went to the Giants. And I read an article that said that the pick they took, uh, he was they considered him weak in his position because he only had X amount of bench presses. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I thought it was such a funny example to see. And on ESPN, on a global website, that's talking about a certain athlete and he only performed X amount of bench presses and therefore he's weak at his position. Mm -hmm. Let's take Let's take bench press and then let's compare it to a standing cable press or even, I don't know the name of the machine, but where they can load, they can plate load it and do a standing press. And how does that now translate to the job that alignment performs? And so if we're looking at correlations between bench press and doing, and what alignment does or wouldn't it rather be, uh, a standing type of cable press or plate loaded press, the correlations right there are probably better. And I've actually had a professor in the past that had some of this data. He's actually now the, I think he's the performance strength coach for Alabama. And he's really big into data. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, he's one of the best strength coaches out there. But he brought up this example to as a question for the students and this was his own data and he was talking about the musculature that was activated in a bench press compared to the standing cable press and what would be better suited for certain athletes and so that i think that's a can of worms right there talking about the assessments utilized in the combine and why are certain uh, drills utilized and even looking at the agility drills change of direction drills same kind of question comes up why are these still utilized? But I take that to something that we've talked about throughout this episode is the ability for the clinician or the trainer to analyze that data, use it for their clients, or if we're talking about athletes, mm-hmm. assess them in a certain way. Sure. So with this episode and wrapping it up, I thought there was so many good points in terms of education, why it's important, how you developed a product, all these great things come into mind and talking about the planes of motion, so many great things for the listeners to unpack. Bruce, can you give the listeners some information about BodyBlade in terms of where to find them on social media, the website, and all that kind of good stuff? Uh, yes, of course. Um, you, you can always visit our website at uh, www.bodyblade.com. Um, you can email us as well um, at more info at bodyblade.com uh, that uh, we We'll always answer questions and sometimes return phone calls if, uh, if it's needed as well. Um, on Facebook, uh, you know, at Body Blade, of course, and uh, um, Instagram uh, at Body Blade as well. So those are, those are probably the, the three best ways to get in touch with us. And again, more info at bodyblade.com, B-O-D-Y-B-L-A-D-E. Perfect. And then once things get back to... Um, normal, we'll say, in terms of 
education and workshops? Are you looking at putting out more workshops um, and educational opportunities for physical therapists and personal trainers? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, we haven't spoken about um, what we're all experiencing on a global level right now with uh, COVID-19. I believe it, it's in many ways it will change how we communicate um, with each other in terms of seminars and webinars. And so we're looking into that right now and modifying awesome. um, our educational platform and program. So, so we can address education in a way that will satisfy um, the needs of all of those um, from, from all professionals to consumers as well. Uh, so that, that'll be coming, uh, coming soon. Uh, we're in, in the uh, course of developing those things right now where we can do more webinars and, and connections uh, uh, with all people. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. So Bruce Hymanson, thank you so much for coming on the KIPPS Personal Trainer Application Podcast. You shared a ton of great knowledge bombs for everybody. And it was a real honor to speak with you today. Well, it's an honor to be with you, Tyler. You're a true gentleman. And I look forward to, to being with you again sometime. Thank you.